This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cub to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey, well, I had to take somewhat of an unexpected break last month. As you may know, my father had been quite ill, and on the 8th of last month we received word that he had passed away. It is still difficult for me fully to articulate what these past few weeks have been like, but I did promise myself that I'd return to the show, that I'd continue to write and to be your guide. So here we are today. The conversation you're about to hear is a preface to the mini-series we'll launch soon on the seven rules, reflections, or guides that I use to help folks as they write. So I thought it'd be fun to invite a fellow coach, advisor, and writer, Matt Selznick, to talk about his work and what that process is like, and what, for him, compels, inspires, or drives. Our conversation did go on for a while, though, so we'll share just the first half with you tonight. We hope you enjoy. Hi all, I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Here with me today is Matthew Wayne Selznick, an author, creator, and creative services provider for folks who want to write. I think if, is there a certain kind of media you specialize in? Do you like books mostly? You know, most of my clients, well, first of all, Thanks for having me, Jared. It's, it's, uh, it's woo, here we go, right, right off, right off the water slide. Uh, now I, There's a ledge to shove you off. Yeah. I'll grow my wings on the way down, as Ray Bradbury used to say. Um, anyway, that. it's it, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. And yeah, as far as uh, as the day job of creative services provider, uh, I mostly work with independent authors and some other content creators, including podcasters and the occasional uh, uh, visual artist or uh, fine artist and 
now and again an actor uh i basically it's it's about helping creators of any stripe bring their work to fruition to market and to an audience but but yeah i i I mostly work with writers and podcasters these days, and there's a lot of overlap there, as 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 you know. <laughs> as we'll talk about today, people sometimes ask me, "What does it mean to be a storyteller?" And if you know, how do you know you are one? How do you identify? And I think to your point, the fact that so many folks who create also find some other means to share and to vocalize, if not what they make, then how they make and why. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's as an independent creator, that's kind of how I got my start was way back in in, uh, 2004, hearing about podcasting on uh, uh, the local LA talk radio station here, KFI and Leo Laporte, who some of your listeners might know as the tech guy. Mm. Uh, He's been around for a million years uh, online and off. I was driving to work one day and uh, he had a guest on talking all about this new thing called podcasting. And the guest was Adam Curry. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, who was, you know, uh, for a while there, he liked to call himself the pod father. Uh, <laughs> but the former MTV DJ, who really we do, you know, we can credit for popularizing uh, podcasting in those early days. And so, you know, I, having been, having been in bands and having sort of a, hey, kids, let's put on a show punk rock attitude all of my life. That sounded like fun to me. Um, so, you know, I did my first podcast in October of 2004. And then when my first novel came out in 2005, there were already two or three people already doing this, which was taking their independently published or unpublished novel and releasing it chapter by chapter as a free podcast. Mm. And, uh, and again, seemed like a no brainer to me. And so Brave Men Run was the first. Uh, novel in history with a uh, simultaneous release in several ebook formats, paperback, and free podcast. And I kind of uh, parlayed those skills that I that I had accumulated doing it myself uh, into helping others uh, with a little side side venture, working for a uh, uh, sort of a boutique uh, digital marketing firm that worked with uh, movies and TV for a little while. So. It's a classic case of taking what I know and helping those who might be a couple steps lower on the ladder than I am, you know, and of course, always learning, always learning and relearning from the folks who are higher up on the ladder and uh, rinse, repeat, you know. I want to talk (laughs) for a moment about the book Brave Men Run. What was it like to take the leap forward with that? In terms of the the independent publishing and the podcasting crossover kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, um, Well, so... To set the stage, 2004, 2005, you had to spend as much time explaining what a podcast was as you did, you know, making them and <laughs> everything else. And it was it was very, very, very niche kind of stuff. I mean, this was, remember, this was pre-smartphones. The iPhone had not been released yet. The, there was the iPod and, and there was RSS, really simple syndication, which was put the two together and you know, RSS 2.0, which not to get too deep into the tech weeds, but that was what enabled people to attach a media file, mainly audio, to their blog posts. And right. Hence, people forget that it was in its earliest iteration, simply just an info feed. Yeah. Yeah. And it still is at its core. Um, podcasting is still just uh, a blog post with a media file attached to it. There was a very small community. In fact, this is going to date me as well. Uh, uh, the 
the main sort of repository for information about podcasting and for podcasters and how to do the whole thing and trade skills and stuff was a Yahoo group. (laughs) (laughs) And it really was the place, Uh, you know, um, many of the folks who are still podcasting today and including, um, you know, names that, that have gone on to, to bigger and better things got their start there. Uh, the, the, the first podcast and new media expo was, was born there. And I think these days it's, it's had a different name almost every year <laughs> as the landscape changes, but that still exists in one form or another. It was blog world for a while there. And you just call it rebranding the show. Yeah. Yeah. The whole conference. But, <laughs> but anyway, it, it, and I'm, you're going to have to forgive me. This is kind of uh, how I ride. I'm going to have a lot of digressions and context in history as, as you oh, ask my me questions. My audience is used to that. <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. So, you know, I had been podcasting for about a year, just short of a year. And, I was already seeing three people, notably, who were podcasting their novels. Two, uh, one went on to huge uh, New York Times bestseller success, the author Scott Sigler. Another, T. Morris, uh, has kind of segued into mostly writing nonfiction books. He wrote The Dummies book on uh, on podcasting, uh, for example, or maybe it was The Idiot's Guide. Uh, he and Evo Terra. One of them wrote The Idiot's Guide. One of them wrote The Dummies book. And a, a, a gentleman by the name of, of Paul Story, who I always like to mention because his first podcast works, he may have been the first to podcast his, uh, his novel. And I may have to... Uh, put the link I may have to give you the link to the title because uh, I'm it's escaping me right now it you know it was 17 years ago <laughs> you have seen but, an article from the Guardian in 2005 sure yep yeah um, but uh, but so we Tom were all, Corvin Tom Corvin yes well done well done real time real time just in time research good for you <laughs> um, yeah and I mean to give you an idea of the the DIY flavor of all of this. Paul Story lived in a tent. He was one of these, you know, kind of live off the land. He lived in a tent in Scotland and recorded this thing. You know, he would uh, visit friends and and he would record this thing on the on the most uh, basic equipment available at the time. But it was compelling. It was good storytelling. And you know, again, it's kind of that punk rock attitude. It's it's the the passion and the quality of the content over necessarily, you know, incredible sound quality or or perfect production values or whatnot. Having seen these three other people do it, I'm like, well, this really seems like a no brainer. Uh, it's it's it'll only cost me time, really. You know, uh, and I think I recorded the uh, podcast episodes for Brave Men Run over the course of three very, very long kind of marathon sessions. And I would never do that again. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> you no, know, that's, but, a, that's an adventure in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. I would never do it quite that fast. And, and uh, it, no matter how much uh, lemon tea you drink, your, your voice begins to suffer and, and uh, it, it's just much better to, to do it in smaller bites. But that was, you know, that was, that was then. I think I had a window where the house to, was to myself and I just blasted through it. 
the joining that sort of, you know, already being part of the sort of rarefied air of, of these pioneers who were podcasting and then joining that even smaller uh, clique of folks who were uh, independent writers who were podcasting their books. Uh, it was it was definitely a rising tide, you know, raises all boats kind of thing. Um, there was a lot of promotional and creative uh, crossover and collaboration between authors and our shows and and lots and lots of uh, it was I mean, um, you know, they, those were salad days, uh, to be honest. There was a lot of uh, really tight knit community that developed there. And, and I made friends that I still have to this day. From from the standpoint of a of a of an independent creator, the sort of self feeding machine of do something unusual and then get to talk about that unusual action gave me plenty of opportunities. Uh, people wanted to talk about it. You know, why are you podcasting? What is podcasting? Why on earth would you give your book away for free as a podcast? <laughs> yes. <The> you know, <laughs> and and the answer, you know, to that last one is. Look, I gave it away for free, but of course, I had links in the show notes, and I would mention that at the top and at the bottom of every episode where people could get the ebook and where people could could order the paperback, and also where, if they wanted to, they could just donate to support the podcast. And there were many weeks where donations from people who were simply enjoying the experience would outstrip ebook sales and paperback sales. This is this is the Patreon model. This is the coffee model. This is it's exactly, except yeah. it was you know ten years before that, ten or twelve years. Yeah, but but the idea that you could give some of what you were creating to entice people to be to move from the market to audience to tribe, absolutely. And that once they became part of your tribe, they would to some extent provide for you. What I find fascinating though is that, as you said, the contributions exceeded the sales. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that was that was the thing. And you know, I stopped counting when I was able to, you know, when I could confirm that there were about 30,000 listeners to the podcast. I and remember again, this was 2005, 2006. Sure. I stopped caring at that point. I'm like, all right, it's it's worldwide. It's uh, you know, it it this has been a success. And it led to a uh, a, a small press called Permuted Press. They were creating a new imprint called Swarm Press. Mm -hmm. And um, they came to me and they came to Mer Lafferty, uh, who still has, mm -hmm. still, you know, Hugo uh, award-winning author, John, F., uh, John Campbell award-winning author, and she still has her long-running podcast, I Should Be Writing. Permuted Press came to her and I because they wanted a couple of sort of superhero fiction novels to launch their imprint. And her one of her books, uh, Playing for Keeps, was actual sort of long underwear spandex superheroes, and mine was people people with super abilities, but not so tightly hewn to like the comic book tropes. Mm -hmm. And um, and so it led to that, you know, it led to a traditional publishing deal, uh, and and so on and so forth. The 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 real lesson from those days, a couple of them actually, I would say. Uh, you know, the, the most important thing was you mentioned it, the tribe, you know, the people who I, I joke when people ask what kind of stuff I make. I said, I, I make the kinds of things that people who like the kinds of things that I make like. <laughs> <laughs> and and that is how I discovered those people in, in those days. And so 
giving more than you ask for, you know, if, if that's a way to put it, uh, being as transparent and vulnerable and open about your work and, and uh, not being afraid, uh, as Amanda Palmer would put it to, to ask for the donut, you know, to make the ask to, to say, Hey, I made this thing, please, please enjoy it and give me something. If you, if you like it, you know, that whole attitude, you know, uh, I'm on my mailing list today are still people who have been around from that day. And they are, as Kevin Kelly would say, you know, they're, they're super fans. They're 1000 part of the 1000 true fans. I don't have 1000 true fans, but they are those, those folks who continue to buy everything I put out and champion everything. The reality is numerically, you don't need in all cases to have exactly 1000 true fans. Well, of course not. Yeah, no, it, it, it has to do with with how often you put something out and what the price point is and all of that. Yeah, How they convert is the essential question there. And the fact that they continue to, because those fans, by and large, I'm sure will also find others like themselves who might like you. Right, right. And, you know, I'll be I'll be frank, that has diminished over time. Um, sure. Part of that is. Part of that is on me. Uh, I am not as prolific as I could have been, you know, uh, and if you don't keep putting things out, well, people find other things to do. And, and I am, and we can perhaps talk about this when we get into, you know, some of the other subjects we want to talk about, but sure. I, I, I don't like to stick to one story world. I don't, I've got a lot of things to explore. So then the question becomes how many of those folks are fans of the one thing you make, but perhaps not another. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, no, no hard feelings or anything, but a lot of those folks were like, you know, when I came out with my second novel, which was a follow-up to the first folks were like, is there a free podcast? Well, no, <laughs> no, there is not. Uh, <laughs> Can I get this book free too? <laughs> yeah. And, and people did drop off, you know, sure. and uh, that second book, which being a second book is, is, you know, an order of magnitude just better than the first uh, has a much smaller uh, audience and, and much lower sales. And, and, you know, I'm facing kind of that same challenge now where I'm, I, I just recently surveyed my mailing list. It had been a long time since I'd done it, but I wanted to know, you know, you know, what, what's, what's going on out there. You, you guys still open a lot of, you know, good percentage of the emails and, mm-hmm. But I'm, I, I began to notice less and less, shall we call it, monetary engagement. <laughs> they were still an active audience, but they were no longer, per se, part of the folks who would provide. Yes, yes. And, uh, and you know, I, I did indeed, as I suspected. The, the, they are, for one thing, this is something fascinating that I discovered, is most of the people who responded to the survey don't write reviews. They don't write reviews on Amazon or anything like that. Um, it's just not something that they do. And many of them were indeed mostly interested in, you know, it's it's sort of first album syndrome. They were mostly interested in more stuff like the very first thing I did. That's not a, a fault on their part. That is simply a, a, a data point that tells me I need to find new and different people. You know, uh, eventually and and occasionally I'll still have things for the folks who want the sort of alt history uh, metahumans in the real world story world that that Brave Men Run is part of, 
Um, you know, I'll still have things for them now and again, but I need to find folks who uh, who are interested in in the new stuff that's that's coming out and the different stuff. I think this is a great transition point to talk about one of the clients you shared with me, a fellow who began writing his book seven years ago, I believe. That right now in the process in the process of taking from that moment of conception and practice and it was in a monastery right he isolated himself so deeply in this unique world to write the story and now has to bring it back into the rest of the world for others to find yeah yeah his name is todd kessel and he, he wrote a a very large uh like hundred and ten thousand word um literary novel um, in in the sort of you know very very loosely not preachy but but philosophically the Catholic fiction tradition is it almost closer to something like a building with Roman where it's as much about the journey you take as the journey the character takes <laughs> um no I would say his his book which he called three in Albuquerque is one of these sort of mosaic novels where in each of the three parts, you're following different people, mm-hmm. but they begin to overlap and subtly interact with each other and affect each other's lives. So it follows kind of the postmodern of novel structure. It's to not a necessarily degree. chromatic or chromatic chronological. I can speak right. Today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In fact, yeah, there's a lot of uh, overlap in terms of, you know, one person could walk through one door in one part of the book and come out the same door in another part of the book, you know. Uh, so this would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the point is, is that he had written this thing and, and it, he was trying to create something that was it you know exemplified the I believe it was the Cisterian Cistern order. Uh, I'll get that exact thing for you uh, in a, in the follow up. Yeah, he wanted to 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 communicate the virtues of his order and this particular Catholic tradition. It's a beautiful story. He was clearly um, uh, organically a good storyteller. He he engaged me as a developmental editor. And I'm sure it was a a reference from someone else who had known me or worked with me. I don't remember how how he came to me, but he engaged me as a developmental editor to to when I do developmental edits, it's sort of a, a ten thousand foot view, you know, on on the broad strokes of of the strengths and opportunities for the story. But then I'll also do a line by line in context commentary specifically, you know, on, on things that can be improved and strengthened and, and why this would work and why this doesn't and all that. Structure, pacing, dialogue. All of that. Yeah, addiction, all of that, yes. Yeah, with, with, uh, uh, with some level of, of conceit and zero false modesty. I call it a, a masterclass in story architecture with your manuscript as the syllabus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it does make sense, though, because what else could what else do you have to work with other well, than yeah. you right? Indeed, indeed. So, you know, and it was, a, I think it was a fruitful experience for him. Um, and, you know, he took everything that I had to offer to him and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to absorb all this and and get to work. And other than occasional, um, you know, little, hey, how's it goings here and there, I didn't hear from him for about seven years about the book. And mm-hmm. then he resurfaced and said, well, you know what, I, I've been working on it, believe it or not. And he had decided to break this, you know, this this epic <laughs> into three sort of novella, novelette-sized chunks, uh, 
And uh, so the we came he when he came back around to me, my new job was to create the uh, the ebooks for this uh, for this work. Um, and you know, create the covers and, and format the stuff and help them get it up on Amazon and stuff. And that was at, at this point, at least, and we built a website for him as well. But uh, at, at, at this point, that was the extent that that was his definition of success. You know, this work of his uh, is now in the world. You know, it's out there for those who might discover it, which is to me, I, I, I love this because uh, it's. My sort of, if I have an overarching mission when it comes to helping other creators, it's I want to see more art in the world. I want to see stuff that adds to the culture. And that's, I know, I realize that's a very, very, very broad statement. But, you know, I'm driven by the idea that art isn't really art until it's experienced by someone other than the person who made it. Thank you. For good or for bad. All the time. Yeah. You, you know? And it's as true in, as we've been speaking about fiction, as it is the narratives we use to engage in everyday life. I, The story you've shared here is about who he is, who he was, mm-hmm. what you provide and where you helped him and now where you will help him to arrive. That's why he came back to you the second time. You brought him to where he wanted to be the first. So now he returns. Right. You know, and it's, it's, it's gratifying, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's interesting in a way because it's one of the, in terms of, of, you know, commercial viability and whatnot, it's probably one of the smallest projects I've worked on for anyone, but it's, it's, it's one of my favorites because <laughs> we, we, we did what you set out to do, you know? What is it about this experience in particular that you found so rewarding and that you felt either reflected in his own experience of it or in where this helped you reaffirm, I suppose, what your business is and should be like? Well, that's a great question. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to try not to be one of those uh, interviewees who responds to every question with, that's a great question. No, I, I asked but, uh, <laughs> I did read your post about the big plan you, you had put mm-hmm. up last year. Mm-hmm. You had decided that like the shoemakers, kids who have been without shoes too long, you're going to apply your materials to yourself right and organize your writing work and life yes i i ask because i think it is easy in business to continue providing what people ask for helping them arrive to where they would like to but sometimes we forget whether or not that's the thing we want to provide oh for sure yeah yeah and and to 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 just address the first part of that you know what was it that was so gratifying or uh i'm, I'm paraphrasing you i'm sure but but the 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 thing that makes that one of my favorite projects and and him one of my favorite clients is first of all he knew what he wanted mm. you know his vision was very clear and it, honestly it took me a little while to adjust to the i don't want to say constraints because that that could have a negative connotation but to the to the scope of his vision you know Cause I'm always like, well, we got, you know, let's get you a mailing list and build up a website and get you this and that. And he's like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to do any of that. Like, Oh, Oh, all right. <laughs> Let me put on my listening hat <laughs> and uh, find out what you actually do need instead of what I think you need. And, uh, and once, once we figured that out, I very much respected number one, the fact that over the course of seven years, he had not abandoned the project. And 
you know, I mean, just like anyone, I'm sure he had some feelings of like, oh gosh, you know, this, this is still mm-hmm. undone or whatever, or, but his motivations were always very clear to him and his understanding of, uh, uh, of what he could get out of it was always very clear to him. And, you know, it, I mean, it's, I, it, we talk about our, our books and things as being like our, our, our children. And, you know, I, I think for, for Todd Kessel, that might really be kind of the case because it's enough to have known that he has brought this life into the world. This goes into when I said before who they are. You didn't, you can't just know the surface demographics. You can't know, okay, religion matters to him. He's dedicated time, et cetera. You have to know the why of it. The what, mm-hmm. as I say on the show, the needs, wants, and desires. What's right now? What's soon? And what's he willing to commit seven years to? Right, right, exactly. And uh, and and in terms of like how I I was able to you know kind of digest that from my own work, you know, in our sort of. Uh, our pre-interview talk, uh, I think I mentioned, you know, how the 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 master mechanic always has the worst car in town, right? Um, <laughs> and and I, I certainly am. Uh, I can I can fall victim to that. There is also, you know, there's only so much time to be alive. Memento mori. Uh, it, there's uh, there at a certain point, uh, and I think about this a lot. I'm driven by the idea of uh, of creative legacy. Uh, I don't have children. I don't particularly want children, but I do have a sense that these concepts and ideas and point of view that I have that I mostly present through fiction, you know, I, I uh, probably just as a human being, I want those things to persevere, but there will be no chance of that if I don't actually get around to creating them. It's something that, that in fact, as you said earlier, comes to life when another person finds it. And I think when we do speak through tribe, when we talk about the story, the life, where we'll arrive with them or, or help them to arrive, the legacy is the thing that survives us and them, right? Mm-hmm. What they take from the story, what they take from the service, from the product, from the solutions we provide, those are the stories they'll tell. And decide used to decide whether they come back to you or others like you in time. I I used to work in life insurance, and when I would interview the sales folks, the thing that moved most of them was the moment after years they came back to the family and saw the next generation help the children get into college through other means that they'd set up over time, converted policies. The actual conversation was never about the finance itself. Mm-hmm. It was what that security could do to help people reach the place they, they wanted to in life. And when you spoke to the salespeople who were there, who would know their clients for years, families for decades at a time, there was this sense of commitment that they were helping to build a legacy, build a life with this part of, with a member of their tribe. Mm-hmm. 
and that their role as a trusted advisor in this regard became part of that flow of life. Okay, we're, we're, we have a child who's going to college soon. What can we convert into to support that? We want to buy a house. How do we maneuver savings into the proper format, into the proper structures, liquidate what we need to, to finance that? Because I've always, when you buy a house, for instance, it's not just about a house. It's about what that life will be in it. Sure. And where a car, for instance, or other means of transportation helps you to get or to go to more easily to arrive at. So when those first fans saw this book that was not about heroes in underpants, <laughs> but about what it meant to have unusual powers in a world where not everyone did and what you decide or don't based on that. That story resonated with them. And there's a reason they wanted more of it from you, or if not from you, someone else, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and and we're talking about Brave Men Run. And mm-hmm. And yeah, that there were some other elements to that too that really resonated. Uh, it was set in uh, 1985. In in everything but name, I suppose it was a young adult or a new adult novel. Didn't write it like that. Didn't it's, write it thinking about that. I think that. it's part of what resonated with folks who like Stranger Things. It spoke to the. It spoke to a part of their own childhood and younger adult life. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, and I very deliberately. Uh, I mean. It, I won't go so far as to say it was a Mary Sue, uh, if your if your listeners understand that term, where it's completely, you know, oh, this is the author in this story. Sure, uh, <laughs> it wasn't completely that, but I certainly did. I mean, I I based it in a town that was a thinly disguised uh, version of the the town that I grew up in high school in. You know, um, because I wanted it, I wanted the verisimilitude to to just really just soak into your skin. And also it was a love letter to a lot of sort of bronze age and silver age uh, comics. So, you know, it was, it was everything that I loved at that time and everything that had brought me to that point. Uh, and I think it really showed. I don't want to interrupt you, but you were, I was trying to remember when the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shabon was first published. Oh yeah. Um, because it speaks to that. And I, I 2001, yeah. September 18th. So yeah. Or 2000, yeah. September 18th, when the Pulitzer in 2001, there was this desire within that population to mm-hmm. imagine and live this, or to try to engage in this imagined and better life that this uh, that superhero fantasy, as it were, right, tapped into. I think if we're looking, we'll talk probably more about this as we move into our next few topics too, but this desire to engage in serialized content, particularly of the kind that was urban fantastic or that imagines, as with I think we talked about earlier, Jupiter's legacy, the idea that we could all have some type of innate, surreal or unusual capacities with which to alter and change the world. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I mean we could we could have a whole other discussion on on the, the philosoph- philosophical kind of underpinnings and cultural sure. underpinnings of, of of so-called superhero fiction, but uh the, the mythology around it. But, Absolutely. but yeah, in, in 1980, sorry, in, in 2005, um, well, to give you an idea of how the Zeitgeist was was kind of coming around to this, you know, a, a, about a year, give or take, after Brave Men Run came out, people were emailing me. Are you pissed off? That TV show stole your ideas. They were talking about, <laughs> yes. were talking about heroes. Oh, you know? right. I, you know, I was in college, I was in grad school at the time during heroes writing, and then during the strike that destroyed it. Mm, yeah, yeah. And all I had to t- to respond to these people was, 
they didn't steal those ideas. We're both cribbing off of ideas that have been around for 40 years at that point. <laughs> you know. Right, but those ideas were known to the people who became audience this for who yeah. for this first time became the audience to that kind of tale. Right, right. And honestly, I mean, as a creator, the story worlds that I work in, the Sovereign Era, which is what Brave Men Run is based in, and and the Shapers world, which is my fantasy setting now, I am I've always been deeply influenced, not necessarily by the actual content of comics, but the idea of the interconnected universe, you know, which of course everybody's familiar with now because of of the Marvel Cinematic every, Universe. If, almost every brand now is a universe. Almost see. every brand, yeah, yeah. And, but it all started really, I mean, I look back and get my uh, sort of, if I look at my core inspirations, sure. I think about Marvel Comics and then being a preteen and a, a, and a young teen first reading Stephen King and recognizing mm-hmm. that he was putting all his things together and then seeing him drop little asides that told me as a reader, aha, well, and, he's and, a Marvel comics fan too, because <laughs> and King in particular with the dark tower being a metafiction of his entire set of narratives. Well, yeah. And that, that, you know, while he, I'm sure he was kind of thinking about that, in some form all along that came much later, but certainly, but in his earliest works, I mean, I mean, just his, it's his castle rock universe, you know, uh, Jerusalem's lot, Salem's lot is, is like an hour down the freeway from Salem, from, from castle rock and et cetera, et cetera. It all takes place in this fictional main. Right. Which owes a great deal of debt to Lovecraft. Of course. Yeah. um, Well, there's another, yes. Yeah, another sort of proto story world builder, you know. So that's always inspired me. Uh, you know, it is on point because we are talking about branding and particularly how you create content than one that fits the brand and the mar- and the market or audience or tribe that attaches itself to their view of a brand, right? But also to these moments, as you mentioned earlier, that you kind of want to try something else. Well, yeah, and and it's. It's not new to me. Uh, the, the novel that came out last year, Light of the Outsider, mm-hmm. in, in a new story world, the Shaper's world, which is sort of a, it's an original fantasy setting that is, uh, it owes as much to sort of science fictional world building as it does to the usual fantasy tropes. I mean, there's no, this is not Earth. This is not medieval fill in the blank. Uh, it's it's a wholly original world. No dwarves, no elves, no horses. Um, <laughs> But that's, you know, this is a story world that's been kicking around for me for for 30 years or more. It is another of these interconnected uh, universes. You know, uh, I'm, I really believe in working in what I call a story world uh, model. Other people like, like Trumby, for example, has a different definition of the word. But to me, it's a milieu. It's, it's the setting. It's the the meta setting. So you're you're in a sense less interested with what you know with writing to fit the fit a or the genre per se, and more to see what kind of tales can be told within a given world. Yes, with some common threads and themes. Uh, I mean, kind of, sort of, but not really. You mentioned the Dark Tower before. Sure. Uh, you know, I I have four story worlds that I kick around in two that I've written in actively, you know, more than like a short story here or there, but they are all part of a sort of a superset of a larger story. 
So, and, and it's to kind of give sense, give the audience at home a sense of scale to this, there are the worlds in which stories takes place, but in your point of view or the way you structure this, there's a universe in which those worlds reside. Several, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, several realities, yeah, yeah. We do talk about the business of creating stories here, too. When you are asked or told, as you engage or interact with the publisher or try to self-publish, to decide on a genre, or as Amazon will try to force you into, since <laughs> you know, I've lost track of how many genres and subgenres there are, but I think it's an order of five or six digits now, right? Probably, yeah. 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 So, and this is partly because they have found, I think, as we've talked about before, you can get historical between certain time periods of at least five to ten years apart, superhero fiction with particular sub- content or subtext or tropes, et cetera, attached to it. And that can be considered for the purposes of sales on Amazon or viewing on Netflix, who, et cetera, a genre. Mm-hmm. Which is a bit of an expansion off of what genre used to define, particularly in writing, as in here is mystery, here is science fiction, here's fantasy, and here are the do's and do nots if you want people to buy into, not just buy, that kind of tale. Yeah, well, to expand on that, and and pardon me in advance for a bit of a rant, but but genre as we describe it today is a product of brick-and-mortar bookstore and brick-and-mortar tangible print publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it it is a marketing device. It's not a literary device. Uh, and now it's a taxonomy, right? Because everything is, is online. And, and since there's infinite shelf space, then it becomes a way of, of making sense of, of what's out there and helping the reader find what they are comfortable with. Uh, people, as, as Seth Godin likes to say, people like us do things like this. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Amazon, it's, it's in their interest to make sure that not only do people find their little box, but they stay in it until the box is completely exhausted for that person, you know? And that sort of feeds this self-perpetuating compartmentalization of fiction, especially, to the point where, you know, and this is, granted, this is a bit of a sore spot for me because I write, uh, uh, you know, I'm currently writing ostensibly fantasy series that is also a thriller that's also a character driven uh you know more literary by the by the old mm-hmm. school genre definition more literary fiction and that's a challenge it's a challenge for someone who doesn't fit in that box to find that tribe yeah. it used to be for instance question one does your character does, does your story have a hero and a villain if so it's some kind of genre if not it's some kind of literary. <laughs> and it's an oversimplification to think like that but yes in the time when there was only so much physical space or duration in which those books could stay on a shelf mm-hmm. in competition with others that would soon arrive. You had to, as with grocery stores, decide which would have that prime viewing space, the front of the store, the place where the cover could catch the eye. And nowadays, I can go into one of my many Discord channels for artists, for writers, for music lovers of certain subgenres. And it's more about managing my expectations (laughs) because I can upload a recommended show on Netflix and decide within five seconds, yes or no, thumb up or thumb down and irrevocably alter whatever it shows me from then on. Mm -hmm. And it does allow the audience, the consumer, the market audience tribe to be a greater curator 
of what they experience. But I think to your point, it makes it harder for them to discover or find that first time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, they don't, uh, I think readers aren't even being given a chance to discover what they might like. It's, and, and what's interesting is, is even, even though Amazon has, you know, whatever it is, uh, six figures worth of, of subcategories, they still, and they never will, of course, they still don't have enough, you know? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The moment they opened up a secondary press for fan fiction alone, (laughs) <laughs> you obliterated the and you you obliterated the terminal point of taxonomy in yeah. fiction because, as I have mentioned on the podcast before, I know a few people who write gargoyle fiction, mm-hmm. and this is not somebody I ran into online. It was someone I encountered traveling in Arizona, admiring the landscape. We started talking. She shared the writing she was doing, and I went. This was a thing I didn't know existed, but obviously given the comfort of her life. She's either supported on that or other means, but she's fine writing this mm-hmm. and people are fine reading it. So yeah, there's a, the, the joy and the horror is it's harder for those folks for your tribe to find you, but it is easier to find a tribe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, and that's frankly, that's my challenge right now as a creator is, is figuring out where those people are who are interested in sort of the fantastic, but they, uh, or, you know, a, a fantastic setting and those, some of those tropes, but they are willing to, you know, if, if I, they're willing to hear me say no, if they say, well, is it epic fantasy? Well, eh, not really. Is it RPG lit? Definitely it's not. Genre, yes. Oh my God. It's a huge genre. In fact, it's, if you, if you, if you try, if you try to advertise on Amazon, for your book uh, in the fantasy genre, you have to actively work to, to, to not be recommended along with lit RPG books. And that is the, the, the great challenge and, and the, the difficulty there is, and again, this is another tangent, but if you are constantly being put, if your book is being put before the wrong audience on Amazon, then you know you're basically paying for clicks if you're advertising, but you are constantly disappointing someone. Because the expectations they have do not meet what was provided to them. Right. So, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, finding, finding that proper crowd when, uh, and, and really this comes down to what the author has to do uh, these days is figure out how best to communicate. And we should be good at this, right? We, we work in communication. <laughs> how best to communicate what it is we do when it comes to a particular work or series or whatever to the right people. I have two thoughts on this, but to share a little bit of my experience there, one of my earliest works as an independent writer involved adapting a a transcript of a man's homebrew game that he had run over years with a set of players mm-hmm. into a novella. And I had to teach him at that point what a, narr- what a draft was in terms of narrative work. <laughs> because he saw the first draft and was horrified. And I said, no, this is not the final. This is just a run-through of what happens when people... And most of folks who don't think this is a new thing, Margaret Royce and Tracy Hickman, some of the earliest modern fantasy writers for TRSR publications who... If you ever wondered where that whole plethora of books with, say, like Warhammer, Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, et cetera, emerged from, it's from a few folks such as these who took the stories they and their friends created and adapted them into, as Weiss and Hickman did, a novel. 
And yeah, from that's that, how Raymond Feist's Rift War series came out. That's how uh, Melinda Snodgrass and George R. R. Martin's Wildcard series mm-hmm. began. It's very common. Yeah, it's people have teeth teased Patrick Rothfuss for a while about not finishing the last of his books because he was too busy gaming. <laughs> it's not true, but if you watch the man on Twitch, he deeply loves telling stories, and this is a way to do it. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it's it's part of his fun. And the reason I brought that up is our core conversation after the here's what it means to convert to adapt <laughs> a work from the initial form of the idea it had into something that would meet and match the expectations of your market audience and tribe was the question of who those folks were and where you could find them. Mm-hmm. And I always, I like to think of this conversation in terms of those who, people who, folks who want, need, desire, who, there's a thing that they are trying to find, to acquire, to experience, to have in their life. And does the story you've created provide some of that for them? For instance, if you're writing in the new weird, there will be people who are deeply engaged in the intellectual mythology of the the world and the mythos that you've created. There will be people who come off of Sabrina's The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina or Riverdale or all of Netflix's pseudo-horror urban fantasy serializations that are some cases adaptations like Sabrina, other cases new properties entirely, but that all delve into an urban fantastic or a modern version of, I guess, like Charles DeLint and that kind, where Mm -hmm. it's life, but it's augmented in some way or fashion. Black Mirror is a great example from a sci-fi perspective. And there might be others who are less interested in the work itself than in the creator or why they make. So in your case, there might be people out there who are looking to find folks who have, if not a particular world they want to talk about or characters they want to write about, certain thematics, certain ideas, certain journeys they like to write about that span the length of their work. I'm reading C.S. Friedman's This Alien Shore now, which I had never read, and I had finished mm. many of her other series. and even though it's one of her earlier works, I can see so many of the thematics, the idea that humans have irrevocably at some point altered who they were and have to live with the consequences of that, that there's a central mystery to existence that you never quite find the answer to, but if you get enough of an answer to, you can live with in some fashion. The idea that magic, whatever it is, if it's sci-fi, psychics, earth, energies, etc., has a price that you will never fully understand. And if you do, will you still be willing to provide it? These thematics cross all of her work. And I'm one of those fans who's willing to kind of go on a ride with her and see how that plays out in each given permutation. There might be folks, though, who look at this alien shore and go, oh, human variants, when can I get back to dragons? <laughs> because, well, here's a great example. Netflix one day recommended a Neil Stephen book, Stevenson book for me, Seven, Seven Eves, which is a deeply researched brilliant and fantastic story about what happens if the moon were to explode and destroy the earth and how do we survive that and live on as some kind of human and the part i stayed with was that question the part that lost me was the moment where he wrote five pages about the technology needed to do so in one given instance (laughs) and i sat here going i don't care (laughs) get to making me think of uh, his cryptonomicon Yeah, yeah yeah It, that was I was halfway to being tribe for him, but there was this one aspect of the way he told tales that was not right for me. Yeah. And I never would have known that, but I still appreciate the experience because it was outside of what I usually would have looked for or liked. 
we know what we're trying to find, you know, uh, as, as authors, my challenge is, and I'm, I'm broadening out my own sort of uh, comfort zones and trying to, you know, online as it always is, right. Uh, trying to get involved in some groups that, you know, uh, are very, very genre specific, even though, what I, I frankly, I'm I'm just not interested in in most of what they're talking about. <laughs> but I need to know what they're talking about because uh, there may be ways that I can contribute to that community and ways that I can provide value as as, as a member of that community. And this is this is the old saw, you know, you 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 get amongst people who are uh, that that you can help in some way, and and gradually. You become, you know, you said it. Uh, I'll I'll say it a slightly different way. Someone that they know, like, and trust, and that makes them think, hmm. Well, what is this person about? And then they go to your website, and then they see, oh, he's he's got this book, and yada yada, blah blah blah. And so that's the. Uh, in addition to actually writing the fourth novel, the second book in the uh, uh, Shapers World Story World, and the second book in a in a trilogy in that world, which is a creative challenge because I'm, I'm challenging myself and trying some different things structurally. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that basic, you know, uh, nose to the grindstone kind of stuff, there's, yeah, figuring out where those people are, who those people are. And it, it's, it's funny you mentioned uh, C.S. Friedman. I hadn't thought of that name in a long time, but one of my favorite books uh, as a late teen, actually, I guess I was about 19 or 20 when it came out, was her very first in Conquest Born. Born. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which I thought was a really brilliant work. I, I had no idea it was even her first. I just discovered this now. And that's a, a monster of a space opera. I think it's a thousand some pages. Yeah, it's it's huge. And uh but yeah, you're right. From from day one, she's been <laughs> she's been writing the same stuff. And uh and you know, honestly, I I I kind of respect that because it's it's these are questions for her that that are they're basically uh, bottomless wells to be to be tapped, you know. But yeah, finding the folks who are into that, and and I think something else that is important as creators to kind of pull this away from woe is me, but but something else that generally as creators that that I think we could all learn from, and I'm trying to learn from, is how do we best describe what it is? And I touched on this before. What it mm-hmm. is we do what this work that we're currently trying to get you dear reader to to dig into what it actually is and 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 what resonates with that particular crowd so that they'll understand it because it's not just about describing it as you think of it you have to describe it as the target audience would understand it hello We hope you enjoyed the first half of my conversation with Matt tonight. You'll be able to listen to the second part in two weeks' time. As for the miniseries, if you'd like a preview of what we'll discuss in those, you can go to whystoriesell.com slash guide, where you can download a free copy and see for yourself what you're incredible at or might need some help with. Though you're also welcome to reach out to me online and share what you find. See you all next time. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, 
compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.